So thank you, children and leaders. Greatness Limited from Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 to 27. And we're looking at the whole chapter as we, after a break of about three and a half months, we are resuming our series on the book of Daniel. In our last message, uh, you probably remember it, uh, from chapter 7, back in April, or was it in March, um, we focus on the, the marvellous image of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. And we get a, a glimpse as we approach that final chapter when all of history will be wrapped up. When God closes the book of human history, the heavens and the earth are rolled up like a scroll. We know that that day is, is coming, and in, and in many ways it's, it's getting soon. But how privileged we are that we are given a glimpse of it, that, that, that we know how the story ends. We don't have to wonder. We know who wins. We know that God is still in control. And we are part of that. We are actually, as believers, as children of God, we are not just mere spectators, but we are active participants in it. But before we get there, there are still a few pages to get through. Not the end just yet. And as we immerse ourselves deeper into the prophetic and in the, to the prophetic part of Daniel, remember the, the first part of Daniel, it's a narrative, it tells the story of Daniel and his friends as they are exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon and they're serving the king in the palace and the challenges that they face as they try to maintain their, the core faith, the core of their faith without compromising with the demands of living in a pagan society. But in the second part, Daniel shares with us some important visions that he received. And as we immerse ourselves into the prophetic, you, you, if, you, if you're like me, you've read the Bible, and you come to those prophetic messages and say, what, what is all that about? And it's just too hard and, and too difficult. And, and we, we tend to just jump straight across to the stories and the parables and the letters but the prophetic stuff sort of is, is a little bit scary. But we are not alone here because after Daniel saw this vision, the, the end of the, this chapter actually tells us how he reacted. He reacted in the same way that after we read some of these prophetic verses, we tend to come away a little bit perplexed. Well, Daniel is now an old man, possibly in his 80s, but he's still in exile. And even though he's not going back, he's not going back to the promised land, he knows that the people of God, the Jews, will be returning back to Jerusalem. He knew the words of both prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah who said that the exile will last for a period of 70 years. 
And, and this event was very much anticipated by the Jews. But in the, in the meantime, while they were still in exile, it was Daniel's job to, to make sure that their hopes were up, that God was doing something. But also for them to be sober-minded because the return back to Jerusalem was not going to be the end of their troubles. If you thought going back home was going to be all hunky-dory, it's, it's not going to be that easy. So let's get ourselves into the text. And first of all, an introduction in verses 1 and 2. And it says here, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, in the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. So these first two verses set the, the, the scene for us. So while Daniel, let's not get confused here, because while Daniel is not physically there, he is taken there in the vision. He sees himself in Susa, which is, today it is part of western uh, Iran. This city of Susa is also mentioned in the books of Esther and in the book of, of Nehemiah. It was, uh, it was an important city. It was the winter residence of the, of the kings and the administrative capital of the Persian Empire. A bit like a, a Canberra, I suppose. Now in chapter 7, the, the previous chapter, it began with a vision given to him in the first year of King Belshazzar. This vision here comes two years after that vision. So there was a, a gap of two years between that vision, between chapter 7 and chapter 8. But he is still under the same King Belshazzar, who was the last of the, the Babylonian kings. It's also worth noting that the vision in chapter 7 is quite expansive. Like standing um, in my trip, I had the privilege a couple of times to be standing right up on top of a, of a mountain. Uh, an amazing, amazing view. And you, 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 you struggle to, to take a photo of the whole thing. So what you do in these modern uh, smartphones that you get these days is that you're able to get a, get a panoramic view and then you have this skinny photo that goes all the way around, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. So chapter, chapter 7 gives us an expansive panoramic view of, of history right up to the end of the end times which includes Jesus and the Ancient of Days. But here, as we go to, to chapter 8, it's, it's more focused and says, no, we're focusing on that part, which was involving Daniel. It'll come not in his day, but it will be fulfilled in the next couple of hundred or two, three hundred years. So let's look at... A little bit more detail then, the ram, verses 3 to 4, and then in verse 20, which is the interpretation. Looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns. 
standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It became great. Much of these prophetic visions in scripture, you would have noticed, are given to us in dramatic pictures. They say a picture paints, oh, tells a thousand words, right? Pictures are, are, are beautiful. And this is, uh, this is quite, quite a dramatic picture that we have here in Daniel chapter 8. And I think many of us struggle with the apocalyptic passages because we tend to miss the forest, the overall beauty of the, the picture before us, the, the painting before us, because we get stuck into the, the details of, of the trees. We get lost in the detail looking for dates while missing the entirety of the intention of the message that has been revealed to us, or to Daniel and then to us, as we seek to interpret it. What is God trying to do here? Why has he given it to us? Well, these words are given for our comfort and reassurance. They're not for us to get our phone and put in the, the dates and the calendars and saying, that's when Jesus is going to return. But thankfully, we don't have to get lost, I suppose, look, seeking, wondering where, what does it all mean because in the, in the second half of this chapter we're actually given an interpretation as well of what it means. It doesn't always happen with the prophetic. What is this horn? What, the, what is it about? Well, the horn represents power. We notice that one horn of the ram was higher than the other. And the Medo-Persian Empire started as an alliance between two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. But eventually Persia supersedes and dominates the other. So that the Medes were absorbed into Persia. And we get that, how do we know that, Paul? Well, we get that from verse 20. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. That, there it is for us, right? It tells us what it is. And the ram charged towards the, the west, north and south. And these are the movements of, of the Persians as they conquered the known world of their day. They were very, very powerful. They were, were invincible and became, they defeated the Babylonians, which was one of the great empires in history. So these Persians were, were pretty good. And, and they actually went as far as, as India, Pakistan, India, that all, that was under, under the, the territory that they conquered. And if you go to India today, you will see a lot of Persian architecture, even today, of the influence of the Persians. How long was their kingdom? Well, their kingdom lasted for about 250 years. But you know what? All the glory of the Persian Empire had a use-by date and it came to an end. And that's what these next verses are about. So the ram gets rammed, I call this, in verses 5 to 8 and then verse 21. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. 
He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram, shattering its horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it. None could rescue the ram from its power. The goat now becomes very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four heavens, four winds of heaven. And you're probably wondering again, what is going on here? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 21. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The large horn between its eyes. Even though it's not named, is a reference to Alexander the Great. Remember, let's again, let's just focus here. That remember that Daniel receives this prophecy some 200 years before Alexander was even born. For us, this is all ancient history. For Daniel, it was still in the future. Understand that? It was still ahead of him, but for us, we we know that this was already fulfilled. It happened, just as God told Daniel. So even though he, he couldn't fully comprehend what was going on, he was given an insight and he wrote it down. The fact that God knew all this before it happened shouldn't surprise us. What is surprising is that God chooses to reveal his plans to his servant so that he could write it down and reveal it to his people so that when the people look back in history, they could see, wow, God knew all about this. More than that, God was actually in control of the whole situation the whole time. The tumultuous times that people that we're living in are no surprise to God. And this is further confirmation for us as the people of God of the truthfulness of the scriptures. But again, those who do not believe the Bible say that this was written it couldn't have been written before the event. This was actually, this part of Daniel was written after the event because nobody knows the future. Not even God, they say. And there are critics who say that. So, either the Bible will be our authority or we will have authority over the Bible. What would you prefer? Do we trust men? Or do we trust God? I don't know about you, but for me, I'd rather trust God every day. Back to our passage that this goat with its large horn saw the ram with the two horns standing on the bank of the canal and ran at it with fury. You might have seen clips of this, uh, of these animals online. Uh, the deer 
The bucks tend to clash with each other and the goats uh, do the same and the, the sheep, the rams do, do the same and they, they bang. You, know, they, they, you can hear it and you're standing a distance away. You can actually, if you're out in the field, you can actually hear it and they smash their horns. It's quite a sight. And what are they, why do they fight? Why can't they just all get along? Well, what they're doing is they're fighting for territory, but more importantly, they're fighting over the girls that are part of that territory. They have the breeding rights, you see? And this is why these fights continue. And then, once the main buck gains supremacy by knocking over the old buck, then he has to be constantly... Uh, fighting to defend his territory and there's always these young challengers, these young bucks who will challenge the old fella until eventually he gets knocked over as well. And you know what? This is actually the story of the kings and emperors and their kingdoms that go along with them. The, The smashed horns represent the the brittle nature of human power. Very brittle. Rooster one day, feather duster the next. You know, shaggy goat one day, and then you're a mat on, the, on somebody's carpet the next. I've walked and taken many photos of palaces and castles and ancient walls places where thousands of tourists visit every day and and listen to guides describe the glory days of a once powerful ancient civilization always one kingdom one proud nation conquering and building on top of another and another and another they rise, they, they rise one day, reach their peak, and then they fall. While I was in Berlin, I was told of, I think I asked, where is Hitler's bunker, where he made his last stand and where he committed suicide. I, was, I, was, I asked, because I was there, we were in Berlin, next to Checkpoint Charlie, all that area. And, and you know what? Hitler's bunker, far from being a museum is now buried under a car park along with the the shame of that dark period of recent world history. It's not that long ago, 75 years. Why? Well, they became great, but the greatness has been limited by God. Only God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. This is why Isaiah was spot on when he said in our first reading, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, then he, he blows on them. He doesn't even push them, he doesn't even ram them, he simply... And they wither in, in a whirlwind and comes and sweeps them away like chaff. And 
you read ancient history and there are, it's recorded the, the amazing victories of Alexander the Great. The, the, the image of the feet never touching the ground as he, as he advances. It speak of how swift and unparalleled his supremacy in battles was. That one was before him was as swift in his victories. At age 20, he becomes king. 20, okay? Just after leaving high school. He ruled the world by the time he was 26. The known world ruled by the age of 26. Adored as a hero at 29. He was dead under mysterious circumstances by the age of 33. And he died in a palace in Babylon. At the very peak of his powers, the horn was broken. And in its place came up four prominent horns. So when Alexander the Great suddenly died, his empire empire was divided between four of his generals who took over. And what are their names? Well, history tells us they were Cassander. He was given Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus, he took over. Um, he was given Thrace and Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. Seleucus over Syria and uh, Mesopotamia. And Ptolemy over, over Egypt. And if you thought that uh, once the, you know, everybody got their piece of real estate, that everybody will get along fine, that's yours, this is mine. No, they were always clashing and fighting against one another, trying to be, be supreme, you see. And it went on and on and on until finally the Romans came in and they were just wiped out. What about this little horn? The little horn, verses 9 to 14 and then verses 23 to 27. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. The beautiful land is the land of Israel. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Set itself up as as great as commander of the armies of the Lord. He took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. And because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in, in everything it did. And truth was thrown to the ground. Isn't it interesting? that one of the the first victims of times of trouble and war is is always the truth, isn't it? There are many enemies of the truth. Look around. Truth is thrown to the ground. And then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to him, how long... For the vision to be fulfilled. And the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. 
And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be consecrated. And just to clarify something, that this little horn here is different to the little horn in chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, the little horn represents the Antichrist. Here, it refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the the eighth king. Remember those, those four generals that became kings? Well, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, is, comes from the Seleucid, Seleucus dynasty. And he reigned from, from about 170 BC. His capital was Antioch, which was named after him, Antiochus Antioch. You might have heard the name Antioch from the Bible. Antioch appears in the book of Acts, and this is the place where believers were first called Christians. It was in the city of Antioch. Now the conflict that is referred to here with this little horn is more spiritual than it is physical. So the battle is not so much between one empire and another, but a conflict between humanity and divinity because God, heaven, is challenged by him. His his animosity is directed toward heaven and against God's holy people. This is what has happened. Listen to what is happening today. That's exactly what is happening. He also raged against God's people and, and tread these precious stars underfoot. Who are the precious stars? The precious stars are God's people. God sees us as precious stars. Because we are called to be holy, we're called to be separated from the world. And he, what Antiochus did is that he identified himself as the very manifestation of the god Zeus. His his defiance was like saying, if you want to know how powerful Zeus is, then simply look at me. He had his face imprinted on the coins. So every coin you take out of your pocket, he was saying, it points to me. And the prince of the host himself was challenged by this arrogant, blasphemous individual. He built a a pagan altar in in the temple of Jerusalem and offered upon this upon it, he offered a pig in sacrifice. Now a pig is an unclean animal. And this way he defiled the whole sanctuary. The whole sanctuary was defiled. And he, and, and, and he also erected a, a statue of Zeus in the holy place. Truth, like we said, was thrown to the ground because the Hebrew scriptures were outlawed. You couldn't read the, the, the Old Testament, the Bible. Even human sacrifices were made in the temple in Jerusalem. Now this is much worse than whatever the Babylonians did and, and they were pretty bad. This was worse than what was experienced by God's people during Daniel's time because this, they were actually attacking directly their faith. So why did God allow this to happen to his holy place? Well he tells us because of people's rebellion. People became proud People forgot about God. 
people's rebellion. In verses 23 to 27 it says this, In the latter part of the reign, when rebels became completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. Think about it. He will cause deceit to prosper. Lies becomes normal and it spreads. And he will consider himself superior. And when they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. And then, yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So, what happened when Antiochus uh, took power is that uh, he brought an end to the twice-daily twice sacrifice in the temple. So, there was a sacrifice in the morning and a sacrifice in the evening. And these, these sacrifices were... We were taken away for a period of 2,300 mornings and evenings. And this has been a matter of debate. You know, is it how many days is it? Is it three years or is it six years? But if you say two sacrifices a day, then that's 1,150 days. Now, this, this, is, this whole episode is, is recorded in the apocryphal book of Maccabees, which we don't have in our scriptures. And you're probably thinking, well... What is the big deal if, they, if the sacrifices are, are suspended or they, they cancel? What's the big deal? Well, you have to go back to the Old Testament, to the, to the way that God prescribed the whole sacrificial system. And it was all pointing, obviously, to Jesus Christ. There was a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice for atonement of sins. This is how people came to God. This was the, it, was a, it was a necessary part for them to be accepted by God. It's part of the Old Testament system. But then comes the evil one and says, I'm destroying that. And today he says, and you probably heard it, what, what, what is the whole point of Jesus dying on a cross. Why the need for the sacrifice for your sin? It's not really that big a deal, surely. And yet for us, without the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is no eternal destiny. We're not assured of our salvation. We're not assured of our relationship with God. There is no hope of heaven we forget that our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gave his life for us. So never take for granted what Jesus did for us. Never trample upon it. Never forget it. Don't let the evil one erase your memory of how wonderful a saviour we have. 
finally, in the year, in the year 164 BC, so 164 years before the birth of Christ, the temple was cleansed and it was rededicated. And the, the guy who, who led the, the rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes, was, his name was Judas Maccabeus. And he hammered Antiochus Epiphanes into oblivion. And then, of course, the, the, the celebration of the rededication, the cleansing of the temple happened. And we know that as, as Hanukkah. And you might have heard the name, Hanukkah. It's a festival of lights and rededication. And, and the, the Gospel of John refers to this celebration in chapter 10 when he says that Jesus came into the temple during the feast of dedication. Now, this, this character, this person of intrigue, um, Antiochus, he was not the Antichrist, yet he is definitely a prototype of what the Antichrist will be like. And, and he embodies everything that many of the, the, the leaders and those who want to be powerful, and many of them were, they defy God. They go up against heaven. And they, and the, and the power that God had given them, they use it, the, the power, their, their intellect, their wisdom, they use it to rebel against God who given them the, that power. It's, it's a perverse misappropriation of the things that God gives us. You know the story of Stalin when he died? In his deathbed, his daughter tells the story that he died with his fist pointed towards the heaven, defying, defying God. That's a story of mankind, isn't it? And we are seeing this rebellion all around us today. The activity described here as the rebellion or abomination that causes desolation. This will characterize the last days. Yes, he will be destroyed, but notice what it says, but not by human power. Humanly speaking, you cannot come up against this. It is only God who is able to destroy them. And, and this is what Jesus, Jesus uses that very phrase in, in, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 to 15. This is what Jesus said he says then he will be then he said to us he says then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and this is talking about his believers right us believers this is jesus what he says about us and he says then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Are we there yet? And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, 
and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. You see, Jesus knew his Bible. (laughs) Inspired it, right? But the warning that Daniel received is reconfirmed by Jesus because this is what's going to happen. Now these events described in Daniel chapter 8 were partially fulfilled 2200 years ago. But the final fulfillment of this is still to come. Let me ask a stupid question. How does that make you feel? Well, let's see Daniel's reaction in um, verses 26 to 27, the king's business. The vision of the, the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true. And this is the instruction from the angel, right? But seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. And this is Daniel's response. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. It could also be translated, I lay ill. I, was, I felt physically ill by what I'd just seen. For several days, it wasn't just like, okay. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Despite the fact that he received the interpretation of the vision, it still for him was beyond understanding. So what was Daniel's reaction? How did he react once God gave him this this vision? Well, he wasn't, I'm pumped, yeah, let's get out there. No, he felt sick in his stomach. He, He physically spiritually sick he, he, he just didn't have the energy he was why? why did he react this, this way? you know this is Daniel we're talking about this is the guy who in the lion's den this is the guy who, who stood up to the kings why? he had first hand experience of persecution and suffering he knew what it was like and now In his old age, he's concerned by what is going to happen to the people of God 2,500 years later. And that includes you and me. He could see that. It was revealed to him and he shared it with us. The revelation says, and he he felt ill by what he saw. He was disturbed. What he did do, he didn't hide it, he didn't trash the revelation, he wrote it down and it has been handed down to us. So what did he do after he laid down for a few days? Well, he got up and he says here that he went about the king's business. Have your lie down, have your time of rest, have your long service leave, whatever it is you need to do because then Know and understand that there's work to be done. Get up 
and get about and do the king's business. There's an old hymn that um, we used to sing, I think it was in English, and it's also in the Spanish church we used to sing, I'm on the king's business, it, it was called. He, he had to, Daniel, remember, he didn't really like Belshazzar as a king. He didn't have much respect for this, this, this guy. And yet he still had to get up and do service for the king. Because in serving the king, he had a duty to a higher king, his lord. You know, uh, John Wesley, the great John Wesley was once asked what he would do if he knew his Lord would return at, at that t- same time but the next day. What would John Wesley do? And he said, and I quote, he said, I would go to bed and go to sleep, wake up in the morning and go on with my work, for I would want him to find me doing what he had appointed. End of quote. What about us? We are also to go on about the king's business until the day he comes or he calls us home. Big difference is that we love our king, but more importantly, he loves us and gave his life for us. What a marvelous king we serve. Amen.